Basin, and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farming Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk shines a light of explanation on dark matter in the universe. Stephanie Phillips shares excerpts from a webinar sponsored by the Time and the Valley Museum in Gramsville by April M. Bayshaw, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, but first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. More funerals are getting underway in Uvalde, Texas. Today, therefore, two 10-year-old children, among the 21 people shot dead at school a week and a half ago. Next week, a fourth grader who survived the mass shooting, plus victims' families, are set to testify at a House oversight hearing on gun violence. Peter Navarro is now the second advisor to former President Donald Trump to be indicted for criminal contempt of Congress. But NPR's Dave Mistich reports the Justice Department says that will not be the case for two other key advisors who failed to cooperate with the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Sources tell NPR the Justice Department would not prosecute former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and former Deputy Chief of Staff Dan Scavino. Meadows and Scavino spent months negotiating with the committee about their cooperation. The DOJ declining to bring charges is a blow to the panel. In a bipartisan joint statement, Chairman Betty Thompson and Vice Chair Liz Cheney called the decision puzzling and asked the Justice Department for clarity. Former Trump trade advisor Peter Navarro and former Trump strategist Steve Bannon have been indicted on similar charges. The committee has scheduled its first public hearing for the next week. Dave Mistich, NPR News. Even though a vote recount had not ended, Pennsylvania Republican Senate hopeful Dave McCormick is bowing out of the primary. NPR's Don Gagne reports now celebrity TV doctor Mehmet Oz will be the GOP nominee in the Senate race this fall. Vote tallies from the May primary had Oz and McCormick within a 1,000 votes of each other, triggering a recount. But just days into that recount, McCormick announced at a rally in Pittsburgh that he's conceding defeat to Oz, former President Donald Trump's pick in the GOP contest. In November, Oz will face Democrat John Fetterman, who's been off the campaign trail after suffering a minor stroke days before the election. Don Gagne, NPR News. Severodonetsk is now Russia's main focus in its attack on Ukraine. The BBC's David Bamford reports the governor of the Luhansk region says Russia is blowing up bridges to prevent Ukrainians from bringing in reinforcements. In a TV broadcast, the governor of Luhansk, Serhii Haidai, said the Russians were firing missiles at bridges on the Seversky Donetsk River that flows to the west of the city, which the Ukrainian reinforcements would need to cross. The governor said Ukraine's troops were holding their positions inside the city itself and were pushing back Russian forces. He said a fifth of the city had been retaken. The Ukrainian army has also spoken of Russian troops being forced to withdraw from some locations. 
These are the first recent reports of a Ukrainian counter-offensive in this area, though they've not been independently verified. The BBC's David Bamford reporting. It's NPR News. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wallenpapak, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Stephanie Phillips shares more excerpts from a webinar sponsored by the Time and the Valley Museum in Gramsville that highlights an archaeological study of the Ashokan Reservoir by April M. Basaw, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. When you look up at the night sky, everything you see is made of matter. If everything you see is all the matter there is in the universe, then the gravitational forces in the universe would equal the gravitational forces of the visible matter. But there is more gravitational force in the universe than can be accounted for by visible matter alone. This mysterious dark matter makes up a whopping 80% of all matter in the universe. The matter is truly dark. It emits no light or energy and cannot be directly detected by sensors. Nevertheless, scientists know it exists based on the observed motion of stars orbiting galaxies. If visible matter composed all the matter in the universe, then stars near the center of galaxies would move faster than stars at the outer edges. But observations of galaxies reveal that stars at both locations travel at the same velocity. This is evidence that the galaxies contain more matter than can be seen. Scientists don't yet know what dark matter is, but there are several leading hypotheses to explain dark matter. The leading hypothesis is that dark matter is made of WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles. These WIMPs have 10 to 100 times the mass of a proton but, as their name suggests, interact weakly with normal matter. Scientists have not yet been able to shine a light on what dark matter is. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Dr. April M. Basaw, Associate Professor and Chair of the Anthropology Department of Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, made an archaeological study of the Ashokan Reservoir. 
This reservoir is part of the watershed that supplies New York City's water. The Time and the Valley's Museum in Gramsville invited Dr. Besaw to share her findings in a webinar. Today you'll hear excerpts from that webinar. So the Ashokan Reservoir is a large reservoir on the west side of the Hudson River that was functional in 1915. It currently has 123 billion gallon capacity. There's a plan to raise the dam to increase the capacity. They say it's just in case of storms because of climate change. And they also say that it won't actually make the reservoir bigger. But I'm not sure how you could increase capacity and not make something bigger. The Ashokan Reservoir alone supplies 40% of New York City's water. And at its closest point, it's 75 miles north-northwest of New York City. Keep this in mind for a second. Keep where Mount Tremper and Woodstock is in mind for a second. The largest body of water before the Ashokan Reservoir was only 100 acres. So before the Ashokan Reservoir, the largest body of water was this Temple Pond. The railroad was the economic engine of life. And these hamlets that you might have heard of and seen signs for the former site of around the Ashokan Reservoir were mainly train stops or post office locations. This is important for when people say how many towns were demolished or how many villages were demolished. It's hard to count because sometimes the name of a location is just a post office or a railroad stop. A travel brochure before the reservoir went in advertised the travel that you could have through the town of Olive to get into the Catskills. By 1870, the town of Olive became known as the gateway to the Catskills. By 1882, 70,000 visitors, according to the Ulster and Delaware Railroad, were using their railroad to tour the Catskill region. And a round-trip ticket from New York City to the town of Olive cost $5, which, with inflation, is the equivalent of $165 today. So people were going on this railroad to get to... Some of the main resorts like those in Woodstock and Phoenicia, the color image being the uh, Woodstock Overlook Mountain House, whose ruins you could go to today, the Tremper House that burned down and was rebuilt several times. But within the town of Olive, you could stay at a farmhouse. There were some smaller resorts that were bigger than a farmhouse, but a lot of farmhouses would open up their doors in the summer travel season and they would allow boarders to come in and they charge between $5 a week and $4 a day. So you remember $5 is $165 today's money. So they were making good money, Olive residents, from the railroad bringing in tourists. And families would have multiple boarding houses. So this is a postcard of the Winchell Farmhouse in Shokan. And from the uh, Ferris 1897 travel guide, Hiram Winchell in Brown Station also had a boarding house with room for 30. Isaac Winchell in the Hamlet of Olive, that's in the town of Olive, very confusing, had room for 10 boarders. And A.B. Winchell had room for 25. So if you do the math, they're charging $5 a week per person. They've got room for 30, $5 is $165. They're making good money, allowing city residents to experience country living. So before the reservoir went in, this railroad and this tourist economy was the, the backbone of the economy in the town of Olive. In an 1883 travel guide, 
all of the boarding houses in the town of Hurley totaled room for 145. All the boarding houses in Woodstock totaled 506 accommodations. Oh. And in Olive, they had room for 1,207 people. It's 1906, which is the year construction started for the Ashokan Reservoir, 1914, when evacuation of the town of Olive, where the reservoir was going in, would be complete. Between 1883 and 1914, Olive always had more boarding houses and boarding house accommodations than any of the surrounding towns because the railroad went through it. And right when the reservoir construction began, they could accommodate 2,366 boarders. That dropped down because they demolished the railroad, they took away the boarding houses, they rerouted roads. Even if your house wasn't taken, if your boarding house wasn't taken, people couldn't get to you. So this is part of the collateral damage of the people outside the reservoir take line still lost their economy as well. But even when you drop down to 1914, there's just about 750 rooms. And I think some of them were people who are still being optimistic that the city wasn't going to take their property instead of the actual number of rooms that were used um, that year. So this is a hamlet of Shokan. And in one of these travel guides, the Ferris travel guide from 1897, and Ferris is an interesting travel guide because he lived in the town of Olive, the guy who wrote it. He said, nowhere else in the Catskills but Olive does the peaceful level of wide meadow combine so delightfully with the uplifted slopes of high mountains. It is no wonder that hundreds of city folks come here year after year for the season of rest. So it's this beautiful view that people are coming for. This is a dense occupation, this hamlet of Shokan. This is what that same landscape looks like today. And it's important that most of the hamlet of Shokan is not under the water. But because New York City took a buffer of land around the reservoirs, much greater than it did in Boyd's Corners, there's nothing there. But if you walk on the Ashokan Rail Trail that just went in a couple of years ago that goes along the north side of the Ashokan Reservoir, you are literally walking on the land of that hamlet of Shokan. It's not under the water. It's on the land. So you can see the extent of the destruction across the landscape that there's very little left in the town of Kent that isn't either disconnected from the rest of Kent or not being able to have that same artery as the water system, the road system, or the railroad system. So when the reservoir went in, there was a 70% loss in the tourist boarding house economy, but also impacts the river, railroad, and major east-west roads. And these created hardships for all those whose land was not taken. Several schools were lost, six of them in the town of Olive by itself, not counting the losses in the town of Hurley. There were six churches that were lost to the reservoir construction. Over 2,800 dead were removed from cemeteries for the creation of the Ashokan Reservoir. This extends well far out from where the water body ends. To me, most interesting thing that came out of this is that from these circa 1906 land takings, 23% of the land takings were women-owned properties. Most people think that women didn't own property in 1906. And women owned a lot of property 
in the town of Olive. The women-owned properties alone averaged 15 and a half acres per property, but they totaled 1,705 acres. So when it comes to thinking about compensation, how easy was it for an independent landowning woman to take whatever little money they got from New York City and recreate what they had somewhere else? That's a question I can't answer, right? The largest women-owned parcels included Mary Cole's parcel that was 120 acres. So it wasn't just that women-owned small parcels, women-owned parcels of all sizes. Most women-owned properties were adjacent to other women-owned properties, but they were also adjacent to the railroad and to schools and churches. They tended to be downtown. A lot of them also tended to be very small properties on which they had businesses. So New York City didn't compensate people for business loss. They compensated people for the real estate value of their land. Here's an example from Bob Studing's book, The Last of the Handmade Dams, from the legal history. So this story is about Tina Krantz Lasher, who was a widow. Tina Lasher's property... She was living around all of these other women-owned properties, but her land was taken not to be submerged, but her land was taken to build the New York City compound. And this is in the hamlet of Brown Station, which is the only hamlet taken around the Ashokan Reservoir that doesn't have one of those former site of signs. Tina Lasher's only income was her boarding house. She charged $6 a week per person plus meals. So approximately $200 a week per person. She could take 10 to 15 boarders at $100 a week uh, as her income. So she was making in 2021 dollars about $2,500 a week with her boarding house that was adjacent to the railroad. When New York City took her land, she claimed a $10,000 loss of income. The city refused to give her that money for her lost income, and they paid her instead $1,445, and this money arrived after she died and was given to her heirs. So Tina Lasher was not compensated. That brings up the question of could she have, if she hadn't died, recreated her business elsewhere, especially not having been bought out of her business adequately. I've gone to all the local cemeteries and I've looked for the graves of the people who were impacted by the creation of the New York City Reservoir or moved by them from one cemetery being demolished into the other. And one of the people is John Boyce, who owned a gristmill at Bishop Falls, right at the dam that you could park at at the Ashokan Reservoir. He sought $300,000 in lost business from the city, and he was awarded $112,000, which was the largest of any olive landowner, and uh, John Boyce is buried in the Tongor Cemetery. So this is an example of how even the cemeteries contain these stories of the Ashokan Reservoir. John Boyce is a great example of the cumulative losses of family members and the generational wealth that was lost by families across Olive and across the reservoir landscape. 
Boyce Surname people lost 28 parcels for a total of 470 acres. And if you look at surnames by themselves, five family names are repeated over and over that just five families lost 75 parcels and 1,354 acres in 1906. There were also people who lost their jobs that were water-powered jobs from outside the reservoir. When the Esopus was no longer flowing, things like the pulp mills were shut down. I found two postcards of this pulp mills that were sent in 1906, right before the reservoir went in. And in one, it says, Dear Hattie, I suppose this will be gone when the waterworks comes. Yours, Martin. So even people who didn't own land lost a lot when the reservoir came in. Some of the places that were lost seem like empty land. There weren't buildings on maps for it, but this includes places like Crispell's Grove at West Shokan that had a pavilion capable of holding a thousand persons in case of a storm, where they used to have church and school functions. This also was lost to the reservoir. So if you didn't lose your property, you might have lost your school, your church, your fairgrounds, your business, the source of people for your business, the place that you worked, all of these other losses need to be accounted for. So like in Kent doing the archaeology, when we go to these properties, the New York City-owned Black Road property is just north of the Ashokan Reservoir. There's these really huge stone walls. There aren't stone walls bigger than this anywhere else that we've surveyed, and they go on for miles. The interesting thing about this property is that none of the historic maps show any individuals living here or any farms here, even though we also have building foundations on this property. So I think what this is evidence of is that when people lost their land, a lot of people wanted to stay in Olive because they had all these family connections and they tried to move up the slope, right? The valley floor was taken, the slope was still there. Nobody has been able to tell me whose farm this was on Black Road. I think it's because it was so hard for them to reestablish that they didn't stay there long. And that's why they never appear on maps before or after. So this idea of repurposing the slopes is something that continues today. The schoolhouse that replaced the city's demolished schoolhouse, just this past year, the city demolished this schoolhouse. So the city demolished the Boyceville schoolhouse twice over a hundred years of time span. These recreation units around the Ashokan Reservoir, a lot of them are actually completely inaccessible. The Ashokan Brook unit, which is just north of the rail trail in between two houses, it is completely impenetrable. I'm a very determined person who has a lot of hiking experience and I can't get through the entrance to this hiking property. I don't know why anybody would go into this hiking property when you can't actually get through it because there's all these thorns and brambles and dense trees, and there's nothing there once you get there. There's no trails, there's no picnic tables, there's nothing. But it literally says on the map, it's a public access area, but you can't access it. The city properties are also creating inaccessible heritage. This is Elias Elmendorf's grave. There's a small Elmendorf cemetery that is behind these no trespassing signs. This isn't open for hiking. 
It's just no trespassing at all. And there are trees that have come down that are knocking over these gravestones in this cemetery. But my students and I aren't allowed in there to help this cemetery because it's no trespassing with no questions asked. So to wrap up the Olive and Ashokan Reservoir, in 1906, New York City took 4,000 acres of land. By 2019, they've taken an additional 5,500 acres to create this city-owned recreation units. They own additional land, but they haven't turned them into recreation units at this point. The difference between Olive and the Ashokan and Kent and Boyd's Corner is that Olive, many descendants remain, and they know the histories of their families. But telling their histories is complicated by the lack of persistent landmarks. A lot of the communities moved and they kept the same name for their community. So when you talk about Shokan, which Shokan are you talking about? An article from 2015 from the internet lists Olive among the 10 drowned towns that you can visit. And it says some claim that when water levels are low in the reservoir, the tops of churches, schools, barns, and orchards drowned by the creation of the Ashokan can still be seen. So clearly people don't understand how buildings decompose. During a major drought in 2002, building foundations and old wells were revealed. Direct access to the reservoir has been limited since 9-11, but you can still catch a glimpse of the structures from nearby bridges. So I went to the reservoir when there was a 57% reservoir uh, drought, and I walked the nearby bridges and looked to see if this web article was lying. And there's no remains of any of these buildings that you could see from bridges, right? That's what the article said. There are remains in the woods especially. But even when the Ashokan Reservoir is 57% drought, you cannot see the Bishop Falls, which should be right there, right next to the dam. To wrap up, my conclusions from my research are that urban water systems come with significant costs to outlying communities. Um, taking water changes places and its people, and where what happened is not understood, mythology fills in the gaps to make sense of it all. So now you know that the Ashokan Reservoir flooded out quite a few livelihoods in our region. Dr. April M. Baysaw shared the results of her archaeological research on the Ashokan in the webinar sponsored by the Time in the Valley's museum that I excerpted for today's program. To hear her entire lecture, go to the Time in the Valley's Museum channel on YouTube. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Saturday, June 4th, at the Tustin parking lot, 198 Bridge Street, the Narrowsburg Beautification Group, sponsored by the Sullivan Renaissance, will hold their spring plant swap. Exchange plants, seeds, and bulbs with your neighbors. Nothing to exchange? Make a donation instead. Saturday, June 4th, at the Tustin parking lot, 198 Bridge Street in Narrowsburg, New York. On today's show, Farming Country features the music of Steve Jacoby. Steve is one of the singer-songwriter musicians of the Upper Delaware Collective. 
they will be performing at the Drive-In Music Concert, featuring four bands on a mobile, rotating stage. Save the date, Saturday, June 18th, from 6 to 9 p.m., outdoors at the Union in Narrowsburg, New York. Bring a $5 donation and your picnic dinner. Sit outside by the fire pit and enjoy the music of Poison Love, Brewster Smith, Cliff Westfall, and the Tomb Keepers. Saturday, June 18th, 6 to 9 p.m., outdoors at the Union in Narrowsburg, New York. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest for her study of the Ashokan Reservoir, archaeologist April M. Bayshaw. She's an assistant professor of anthropology at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org if you hear good music, you're listening to Radio Catskill. Your weekend can't even begin until Clyde Alvin Yates III sets it off Saturday night at 7. At 9, an hour of global sounds from the African diaspora on Afropop. Then at 10, 